dismissed to go on downstairs, uh, learn about Jesus there. What's good for me is not necessarily good for you. When I have to get through life, you know, the, it's ups and it's downs, right? Sermon prep, housework. It's all this stuff, right, that just comes at you. I have found music be a helpful coping mechanism, right? I'm sure many of you can relate. The music is, is nice, it's helpful, it sort of helps us work through life a little bit. It's kind of a pleasant distraction. But what might be different between us is the kind of music that we listen to, the kind of music that we turn to. And I find that when I have to deal with life's ups and downs, and when life is coming at me from all directions, that I listen to heavy music. Now, I don't mean like ACDC or like Striper, right? For the Striper fans out there, to hell with the devil, right? It's a banger, right? I, I, don't, I don't mean that kind of heavy music. I mean music that is crushing. Music that is overwhelming. Like a wall of sound is just just rolling over me. So distracting. Pulls me right out of whatever is going on and helps me plow through some seriously heavy metal. It's good for me. I love it. It's so enjoyable. The heavy, brutal, forceful, just yelling. I love it. It's good for me. But you might be thinking, gee, that doesn't sound very good for me. Right? Like, getting yelled at might just intensify the stress that you already experience in life. What's good for me might not be good for you. Well, some people in life, right, they enjoy like baths. And I don't get that at all. Right? Baths, I don't get it. What's good for you, it's not necessarily good for me. If I took a bath, I would just be, I would be stressed. I'd be like, what am I supposed to do right now? <laughs> the question is, is what's good for all of us? See, life is like that. Some things are good for you, some things are good for me. But what's good for all of us? Is there anything that's good for all of us when we face life's ups and downs. Well, that's what the author of Ecclesiastes wants to tell us about this morning. As we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 through 7, 14, I want to invite Bethany Murphy to come up. She's going to read our passage for us this morning. 
Our passage this morning comes from the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6, verses 10 through chapter 7, verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may, find, may not find out anything that will be after him. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his assistance this morning. Gracious and most merciful God, we come to you and ask that your spirit would be at work within our hearts and our minds to bring light and life to us, that in this word we might see Christ and live how you call us. Receive all the glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the author of Ecclesiastes opens up with a universal problem. And that problem is, is we cannot change any, anything fundamentally. We cannot change life in any fundamental way. That God is the one who has named, which is an interesting phrase, right? In the scriptures, to name something is God's identifying everything's fundamental nature. To name something is for God to identify everything's fundamental nature. That mankind cannot undo or challenge what God has done and is doing. Uh, this, in the ESV, it, it feels clunky and kind of confusing, like the phrasing of that first verse. I actually, I really like the way the New English translation translates this verse. It's very clear. But he says, whatever has happened was foreordained. 
And whatever happens to a person was also foreknown. This is God doing this. So we might protest. Who does God think he is? Having his hand in everything, in all of the little bits of life. Or maybe we think we take a little bit of a humbler approach. And we say to God, God, if you would just explain yourself, then we could get on the same page as you. That would be good for us. If you would just explain yourself. That's what Job did, did isn't it? But as humans, right, we can't even agree what's good for us, as we've already talked about. Right? Some of that is subjective. But even as we've, as a, as, a, as a human race, have tried to figure out, like, what is objectively good for all of us, right? The philosophers went on and on and on about our highest good, our, what would be the Latin, summum bonum, our highest good, right? They wrote about these things, and yet their writings still to this day produce so much debate and disagreement about what's actually good for us. Right? He says the more words, the more vanity, as we go on and on and on. So how are we supposed to navigate this life that God has made, this life that God has put us in, What's good for us? What does actually give us an advantage? Two questions that the author asks. What is good for us? Who can tell us what's good for us? Who can tell us what will become after us? Matthew Henry wrote this. He says, our lot, whatever it is, is that which is appointed us by the counsel of God, which cannot be altered. And it is therefore our wisdom to reconcile ourselves to it and cheerfully acquiesce to it. And that's really what we're talking about this morning. That as God has named and has set everything into place, wisdom will set us in the right place in our relationship to God and what he is doing. When faced with life's unalterable realities, listen to God because he tells us that wisdom is good for all of us. So I have four points with a conclusion for us this morning. That the goodness of wisdom dares, verses one through four, chapter seven, verses one through four. The goodness of wisdom guides, seven, five through six. The goodness of wisdom produces, 7 through 10, and the goodness of wisdom provides 11 through 12, which all comes to a conclusion, the goodness of wisdom considers 13 through 14. So first, the goodness of wisdom dares us to live with death in mind. Right? Author of Ecclesiastes, how then shall we live? You're going to go on to tell us how to live then, right? Ray starts off by saying, uh, having a, a good reputation, a good name, that's a good way to live. It's so good. It's like a precious ointment. Gabby has this, uh, my wife has this lotion 
that we get, like when we go on vacation, we always make a, a point, if there is one, to stop at a place called Aesop, and Aesop sells lotion. It's a little pricey. We only buy like one thing of it a year, but that thing, that ointment, that lotion lasts the entire year, even beyond the year, right? Because it's precious. We want to preserve it. It's good for the skin. It smells nice. It delights the senses. It's good. It's as good as a good name, a good reputation. But he goes on to make a parallel, a shocking parallel. You know how good a good name is? Well, the day of death is better than the day of your birth. The house of mourning, better than the house of feasting. Sorrow, better than laughter. This might sound strange, right? Does he just want us to sort of live in a perpetual unhappiness? Right? To just sort of live life like, hey, you know, wisdom is found in being miserable? Well, no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's more like wisdom is not avoiding the reality of death by being consumed with pleasure. Right? I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. Let's go. Some of that old school metal, right? Girls, they just want to have fun. Also a bop. Great song. YOLO. I don't know if there's a song for that. I might be dating myself, right? YOLO, you only live once. YOLO. Get busy living or get busy dying. But that's not what wisdom teaches us. Wisdom does not hide behind pleasure in order to avoid death. Wisdom dares us to live with death in mind. And in that, we actually achieve something. We actually achieve something better than those who pay death no mind. Right? The author says, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Michael Eaton, commenting on this, said the man who looked death in the face may have his inner life transformed for the better. I was telling a woman, it might have been my nervousness, it was my first plane ride, uh, but I was telling this woman on a plane who had the misfortune of having to sit next to me why I was grateful to God for my diabetes diagnosis at the age of 10, that it forced me to look at life in a totally different way, that I didn't have the pleasure of living life without having to worry about death, even at such a young age. The face of death changed my approach to life. How do you approach life? When it's difficult, are you trying to fill pain with pleasure? Friends, don't avoid death. Look at it in the face because we all die. And because we all die, 
That should really change our approach to life as we relate to those who are apart from Christ, shouldn't it? That we live in a world which is dying. A world which is dying apart from Christ. And if we live with death in mind, we should all the more urgently and seriously share the love of Christ, the life of Christ, with others, with those who are dying. This is what Christ did, isn't it? He lived with the end in mind. He came to die. It's Christ-like to live with the end in mind. So allow your own death to shape your life and especially how you relate to those who are apart from Christ. Friends, it takes courage, but death dares us to live with death. Sorry, wisdom dares us to live with death in mind. Now, not only that, as we move on to verses 5 through 6, the goodness of wisdom guides us to growth. Now, if you've ever had a real Christmas tree, I didn't grow up with real Christmas trees. I don't like real Christmas trees. We don't, I don't like the whole, like, cutting them down. Like, I just, that's a whole lot of work. Just fake Christmas tree, bend out the branches, pop it in, put it in the attic when you're done, right? But something that's nice about having a real Christmas tree is that when the season is done, and you throw that thing outside, unless you live in the city, right? Please don't do what I'm about to say. Let the trash people pick it up. But if you live out in the country, right? You, you have an old Christmas tree. It sits there, and it just dries up, right? What's so nice is that when you can just take a, you know, a little bit of fire and touch it to that tree, and then it is just a spectacle, right? It goes up so quick. And it's so hot. It's like just a super tapes and taps into our monkey brains or something where it's just like it was pleasurable, like, yes, right? Just watching something burn that quickly. But as soon as it happens, it's already over with. This is the picture that the author of Ecclesiastes uses to describe the praise of fools. It's what he means when he says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, this also is vanity. The praises of fools would tell you you're perfect, just the way you are, right? Just the way you are. That haters can back off, right? You're right, and no one can tell you you're wrong. You do you, boo. Love that for you. <laughs> Praises from others so easily silence the need for correction, doesn't it? For rebuke. The rebukes of a wise person is better than the praises of fools. Because wisdom begets wisdom. To hear the rebuke of a wise person, to receive it with gratitude, is to be wise yourself. That when wisdom guides us, it guides us to growth. Now kids, your parents, when they rebuke you, are trying themselves to live wisely. And their rebukes 
are so that you also might be wise. That's a good thing for your parents to want you to be wise. And consider yourself, they're trying to be wise. Maybe you're here today and you received some advice recently that rubbed you the wrong way because it runs up against some sin in your life or maybe just because you made a decision and they gave you the opposite advice. That person, if they're a wise person or if that's at least a wise rebuke, you should listen to them. It's for your benefit. It's for your growth in wisdom. And that's good for you. And as a church, we want to value living wisely, don't we? One of the tasks that the Lord gives us as his church is that of discipleship, to be discipling one another, to be in a context where we can give one another wise rebukes and receive from one another wise rebukes. Friend, if, if you're here this morning and the Lord has made you wise, and it's okay to admit that, by the way, it's not like foolishness, the Lord has made you wise, but you aren't discipling someone, I'd encourage you, exercise and use your wisdom in discipling another person. And if you're here today and you're looking for some wisdom and you've observed people around here and you've thought to yourself, they seem pretty wise, put yourself in their way this week. Like literally, like be like a roadblock in their life. Get into their life. Seek their wisdom. Their rebukes will be good for you. Friends, when we're faced with life's up and downs and it's unalterable difficulties, it matters who you turn to. And it matters who you turn away from. Because we want to seek wisdom. Because the goodness of wisdom will guide us to growth. But we all know growth doesn't come easy, right? Growth is hard. It's a refining process. It's being stretched and stretched and stretched. Fortunately, wisdom and the goodness of wisdom produces patience in us. Is there anything more frustrating than having to hear the word wait? Right, like wait, that could be frustrating. Like maybe you're just trying to get into possibilities on a Friday night, right? You better be on that wait list or else you're gonna really have to wait. Or maybe you're expecting a promotion or a pay raise at work. You're told, we need you to wait a little bit longer. Or maybe you're waiting for some kind of resolution to come about in a marriage difficult difficulty. Sometimes it might feel like all I'm doing is just waiting around for something to change. When we are told to wait, to be patient, there is a danger to assert our own wills over our lives. 
to become pridefully impatient so that we might make things happen. That's what he gets into now, right? He says, starting in verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness. So the wise person suffering under a heavy hand just gives up, just gives up and gives in to foolish impatience, right? Maybe you're here today and you're experiencing oppression in some ways, like at your work, like you have a bad employer, maybe. You just want to give up. Maybe give in to the, as I mean, I have in the past, but just give in to the sort of misery loves company mentality and just complain all day. Well, most of us certainly feel the oppressiveness of sin weighing down on us, don't we? That it can drive us mad. Wisdom stops, it takes a breath, and it patiently waits on the Lord. But there are others, as he goes on to say, who might take a bribe. Maybe they'll take a bribe, right? A, a, a common way for impatient people to gain an advantage. But it simply corrupts the heart and destroys the one who takes the bribe. Right? We live in a world which would promise us so much if we would simply take its bribe to ignore the things that we value, the things that we believe are Christ, the gospel, the nature of man and sin. It promises us a bribe. Hey, if you compromise on this, we'll make your life a whole heck of a lot more comfortable. That bribe would destroy you, would destroy us. But there are others, he goes on to say, who would react in anger. The anger, right, it's a secondary emotion, right? Second to usually a person, person who is impatient, who can't get their way. So we react in anger. We get angry at the people around us because they won't give us the things that we want. The result, the angry gets stuck in anger. I encourage you today, if you're married, flee anger with your spouse. Patiently wait upon the Lord in your marriage, trusting him to work out his plan, his goodwill and pleasure. If you're here today and you have roommates, right? And maybe they just won't do the dishes. <laughs> Been there. Be patient with your roommates. Don't get angry. Don't let your friend become your enemy. But be patient. Serve them. That would certainly be wise. Or how easy it is to, as we're waiting around for some change to look back and live in the good old days, right? He says, say not, 
Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. The good old days. Man, why can't we get back to that? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just get back to the good old days? Where I wouldn't have to wait for change. Where I wouldn't have to be patient. Because everything is just the way that it should be. Well, I mean, if we seriously consider the good old days, I think we'd quickly realize that they were not as good as our present circumstances. If you're looking at the world around you, you think things were just the way they used to be, that that would be good. It's just no different than it is now. Reject fanciful nostalgia. I love nostalgia, like being nostalgic, it's nice. But it can be such an escapist tool so often, can it be? But that's foolishness. It's not wisdom. It doesn't call us to be patient in the world in which we actually live. But wisdom does call us to that, to be patient where God has placed us. Impatient pride is not what wisdom calls us to. But the goodness of wisdom produces patience. The trials of life are the Lord's way of making us wise. And in that we believe the proverb. It says in verse 8, Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit better than the proud in spirit. Friends, if we are wise in patience, we will see in the end just how worth it, it was to be patient. Now, as you're sitting here, I hope that you're thinking that wisdom sounds really good that it sounds kind of nice, that the fruits of wisdom are attractive. Friends, wisdom is desirable, and not least of all because wisdom, the goodness of wisdom, provides protection. Going on to the next two verses, verses 11 and 12, right? Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So budget, right? People who have budgets, I try to have, we, we try to have a budget. Budgets are good though, right? But in a budget, ordinarily, you'd have a, a line item that says emergency fund. Usually it's a three to six month um, uh, like salary amount to protect you in case of in the case of the circumstances, of bad circumstances, lose your job, something like that. That cash protects our interests in hard circumstances. The author of Ecclesiastes says that wisdom has a similar protective function, that wisdom protects our interests. And here the author actually answers the questions that he started with, right? Like, what, what's good for all of us? 
What gives the advantage to all of us? Well, wisdom in every way is good and gives us an advantage because of its protective function. Wisdom is the best path forward for us all. Right? Up on the computer, late at night, choose wisdom because it will protect you from making poor choices online. Raising children, wisdom will not steer you wrong. Like literally, like wisdom, it's, it will point you in the right. You will not choose poorly if you choose wisdom. It will protect the ways you parent your children. In our current world, we should all, as followers of Christ, be seeking to find ways to love people in the LGBTQ community. And as we do that, we should find ways of being wise in our interactions with them so that Christ might be declared and we also not bring an additional offense to the gospel, that we don't engender more anger than is necessary so that it keeps us from being jerks for Jesus. Friends, the goodness of wisdom provides protection. Its protective value is unmeasurable. Wisdom protects us. And one of the ways it protects us is it gets us to consider why, right? Which is a very big question, right? If you just said why, just like, okay, what are you talking about? When we think about reality, ultimate reality, why things are the way they are, why life is the way that it is, why my life is the way that it is, wisdom leads us to consider the works of God. We need wisdom in life because life is not easy. And the Lord's going to bring us through a lot of ups and downs. He, I'm sure, already has. So as we're seeking to live wisely, we see that the goodness of wisdom considers the works of God. As a church, we confess these words concerning the doctrine of providence. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events. Yet, so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. That our God is a living and active God, right? He's not a God who just sort of like created everything and then got the ball rolling. No, he's a God who has his hands in absolutely everything. In fact, if his hands for even but a moment ceased to be in absolutely everything, everything would just cease to exist. He perpetually upholds guides, directs. We see 
right? We began this morning, as, we, as did the passage, by stating that mankind cannot challenge or change anything that God is doing. And so we read what the author says. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is challenging, isn't it? That God has planned and is working out both the good and the bad. It might be challenging to think about God working through the bad, but that's so good. Because if he wasn't, then why? Where does it come from? And if God isn't in control of it, who is? That's a spooky reality to consider. But that's not the reality in which we live. God is in control of both the good and the bad. And it's difficult because sometimes God doesn't give us an answer for everything, right? We don't have an answer for everything. The Bible isn't some book, right? Like, oh man, this is my answer book. I'm gonna go, like a textbook, I'm gonna go find the right answer to everything. Like, that's not how we approach the scriptures. Because sometimes God leaves us to a deafening silence. And that's good. Because as we consider the works of God and providence, as he works through prosperity and adversity, wisdom considers the work of God so that we might walk humbly before him so that we might be humble before a God who has all things in his hands. That it ought to be sufficient in life to know simply that he knows and to trust because he's good, he's merciful, he's gracious. To believe his wise providence is sufficient because God is sufficient. Michael Eaton, again, he says, both prosperity and adversity have their uses. One leads to joy and the other draws attention to the realities of life and leads, if one so allows, to a life of faith in a sovereign God. Both are subject to God's will and part of his providence. The constant fluctuation between them keeps us dependent, not on our own guesswork, but on God who holds the keys to all unknown. Friends, ultimately, to know that no matter the prosperity or adversity we are in, in God's providence, through the most profound adversity, he brought about the greatest prosperity. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, underwent the suffering at the hands of his enemies so that he might make 
his enemies, his friends, so that we might share in the blessings and the riches of salvation. If you're in Christ this morning, no matter how poor you are, we're rich. None of that gospel prosperity nonsense. God doesn't promise us riches in this life, even though we live in one of the richest countries on the planet. He does not promise us riches, but he does promise us, us the riches of relationship with him, the blessedness of being in relationship with God, to receive the love that the Father has had for the Son from all eternity in the unity of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ this morning, you're rich. Amen? If you don't know Jesus, but wisdom sounds nice, right? Wisdom sounds attractive, like an, an appealing way to live. Know that wisdom points to the God who is wise. If you want to make sense of your life, friend, turn to Christ because he is the fullest revelation of the wisdom of God. That God has confounded the wisdom of the world by defeating death through death. That the death of his son has brought life. If you are here this morning and you just aren't sure about Christianity, friend, grab a Bible's in the back on the bottom shelf there connected to the sound booth. And just, if you open up to the beginning of the New Testament, there are four books there. They're called Gospels. Open up to those books. Those are put forward for us, the life of Christ. Observe Christ's life. Look at his Wisdom, how he speaks and conducts himself. Because Christ's wisdom reveals his divine nature. It reveals the wisdom of God. But if you don't know how to like begin to do that, or maybe you've tried in the past, I'm sure we could find someone here to help you walk through a gospel with you. Just let us know, and we'd love to do that. For the Christians here this morning, pursue wisdom. Pursue it. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's what God tells us. I can't help to go beyond my notes and think about a hymn that was written by John uh, John Newton, right? He, he wrote Amazing Grace, right? But he wrote this other hymn. It's not as widely known as Amazing Grace, called I Asked the Lord, or I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And in John Newton's life, he had a, a friendship uh, with another fellow who's a, also a famous hymn writer. His name is escaping me right now. Wrote God Works in Mysterious Way. Maybe someone knows. Um, but his friend went insane lost his mind, and eventually died. And John Newton writes this hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, and the first several stanzas are about his prayer life, that he asked for more grace and strength, that the, the Lord would 
help him to grow. But it seemed that how the Lord answered his prayers says was to aggravate his woes. It only seemed that the Lord made his life worse. He says, why is this, I trembling cry? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? But then he says, it's in this way, the Lord replied. I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free, to break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thine all in me. That's what the Lord is doing. And wisdom helps us apprehend that difficult and mysterious work of God's providence. Amen? Friends, when we face life's unalterable realities, listen to God because he tells us that wisdom is good for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious and most merciful Father, in whom we have life, breath, and everything, who works in guiding, directing, preserving, upholding all. We ask that you're, by your divine providence that you would uphold us in wisdom, that we would be wise as Christ was wise, that we would be wise as we conduct ourselves in private and in public, that we would be wise with one another as your people, and that as your people, we would be wise with those who are far from Christ. Lord God, help us in this. Without you, we cannot do it. With you, we can. Be glorified, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, we have the